thought Tilly was going to do the scripture today, but she said she wasn't quite ready. She'll, she'll be there one day, like in six months or something. Good morning. Okay. Today is James 5, 7 through 12. Thank you, Dennis, for sending me those numbers because I don't ever know them. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're going through the book of James. I happened to feel the call to memorize the entire book of James in June and recited it to my small group the day that we were starting a sermon series in James. So funny how the Lord does that. Uh, so bear with me. There's a lot of brothers and sisters in this section, and it always trips me up. All right. Brothers and sisters, be patient. Nope, that's not it. Is that right? Is someone following me along? Be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Otherwise, you will be judged, and the judge is standing at the door. As an example of patience in the face of suffering, look to the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of memorizing it. We thank you for the privilege of hearing it directly in our souls and spirits. We ask now, Father, as we uh, continue to worship, uh, and we uh, do that by giving ourselves attentively to your word, that you would uh, reach each one of us specifically how you want uh, to do that. And we, uh, we offer ourselves in this time and, and the obedience that will come from putting your word into practice as uh, worship to you, Lord. Uh, We love you, and uh, Father, we give thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, in uh, 2016, um, after more than a century of trial and tribulation and difficulty, the Chicago Cubs broke a 108-year curse and uh, finally won another World Series. And uh, all of you uh, present this morning or those listening to this message online who traveled with them in that suffering, you have some idea of the hope that was kept being held every spring and finally... The, the catharsis you experienced when, uh, when that victory was finally won. And that is just a small picture, just a small picture, but a picture nevertheless, of 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to walk in the trials and tribulations that we experience in this life and to uh, stand in the hope that one day things will be made right. And that's essentially what James is talking about in this section of his letter in chapter 5. He is uh, laying out the... uh, He's beginning to summarize the letter. He's beginning to sort of draw to a close what he's talking about. And he has uh, made reference in this short passage to uh, trials, to suffering. Um, He has talked about character. He's even talked about the tongue a little bit. But he's bringing to a close his message, which is really what he wants us to get this morning, is to have this unfailing hope in him uh, and his promises in such a way that we are able to cleanse ourselves and have release from the things in this world that are dragging us down, that are causing us great pain. So uh, today we discover the true hope that we are being given here by James and the confidence that we place in that hope uh, through patience and perseverance. And so the message can be titled, True Hope is Patient and it Perseveres, if it's true hope. And we're going to see five sections in this little passage. And each one of them gives us sort of a portrait, sort of a picture to look at what Uh, James is talking about and points us to the gospel. In the first couple of verses, he's really talking about patient waiting for Jesus to return. To to patiently wait for that. And he mentions the return of Jesus twice. Uh, He then goes on to talk about being united in love, meaning not grumbling or complaining uh, or murmuring, but uh, to stand firm because, again looking at the uh, fact that one day Jesus will judge and he is literally standing at the door waiting uh, for this moment. Thirdly, he then talks about patience in, in, and hope among a, a group of people who centered their lives around the word of God, the prophets. And he lumps them all together uh, and, he, and he says, these, these men and women... Uh, were in the face of suffering, people who spoke in the name of the Lord and who stood firm and kept speaking. And then fourthly, he says in reference to Job, he says perseverance and the character of perseverance uh, trusts ultimately in God's mercy. And uh, the, the example of Job... Uh, is given there, and we're going to look at that. That's definitely a picture. And then finally, this picture of uh, walking the talk, yes being yes, no being no, speaking simply and firmly, uh, and that is, a, that is a picture of Jesus. That is a picture of who he is and what he did when he was here and wh- how he's speaking even now. And the alternative to that uh, is condemnation. So, Uh, James is really trying to bring it together and he's giving us a picture of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us an identity and a meaning in life that suffering cannot take away. Let me say that again. 
Jesus gives us identity and meaning that suffering cannot take away. And so uh, Peter says it this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So the the walk with Jesus, the life that we now live uh, on earth in in a fallen state is one where we should anticipate, expect struggles and trials and grief and all that difficulty. And it's in this sense that this book does a better job of explaining what's going on around us than any other system of thought. Because every other system of thought breaks down at the point of suffering. And this is the one that has, in the middle of it, a suffering God who will now promise us these things but will not take away the reality of the suffering around us short term. Now this ties directly to the very beginning of the letter. Let me show you a chart I showed you uh, in the beginning of the letter. In, In the first 12 verses, James outlines, here's how to understand life on earth. You will have trials. Those trials will test your faith. That testing will produce perseverance, the ability to remain or or abide under the load that you might be feeling today. I'm expecting that many of us are feeling that exact kind of load on their shoulders today. That makes you mature. That process of going through the trial, the testing, and the, and the remaining under makes you mature, complete, perfect. And then that leads to blessing, the crown that was promised, the eternal life that is being promised. And then that leads to joy now. That leads to joy now and forever. Because now we can understand and walk with Christ through the cross, through the empty grave, uh, and we know that one day that will be exactly our journey. The exodus from this world to the next world, which he modeled, is exactly what will happen for us at that right time. And the writers of the New Testament didn't know when that was going to happen. So we're stuck in the, the, mid, the midst of the kingdom is now already. People are being healed. People are being raised from the dead. But the kingdom is not yet. It's not fully manifested yet. It's not completely happening. So we have joy now and joy as we wait. So let me unpack these, these five different pictures that I've, I've mentioned so far. So first one is this patient in, in waiting for the return of Jesus. That word in the text in, in the Greek is parousia. Say that. Okay, so that's just the word that describes a conquering emperor coming back uh, from the battles. 
That's, that's also known as a parousia. Uh, so the picture we're given here is, is for a farmer waiting for his crop. And it talks about the autumn rains and the spring rains. So what goes on in Israel is sometime around October, it hasn't rained for seven or eight months, and we start getting the first bit of the autumn rains. And then it goes on for some time. And then there's kind of winter, which is fairly brief. But nevertheless, in some parts of Israel, including Jerusalem, it does snow in January, sometimes a lot. And then uh, more rain through the spring, and it's pretty well over by the end of March. And what's interesting is that the, the spring the spring the the uh, spring rain is what gets the whole agricultural process started, and then the crops grow. They supplement that with irrigation, and then in the fall, um, they need just a little bit more rain to finish the job, and then they harvest. Now, one example is the olive tree. The olive tree will, uh, you know, bud in the spring. And the fruit will come, the olives will come, and then till the very... And then when that, when that first autumn rain comes, the trees suck up the water and pump it into the olives. And the olives in that last bit just get filled up. So the farmer, whether he's doing olives or uh, barley or whatever he's doing, he, he is trusting that that process that's been going on for years and years and years and years will continue to happen. And he's trusting God to provide it. If you do a chart of the population of Israel uh, since 1948, they went from about a million eight to about 12 million today, the rain in Israel has increased pretty much matching population. In other words, God's been doing his job. He's been doing his job so there's enough food to feed the people. That's what he promised Noah. We don't distribute that food very well, but that is promise. So this picture is the picture of patient waiting for the thing to come, the crop to come in this case. It's an example that shows us how God wants us to be thinking. Now that word, parousia, was translated, when they first translated the Bible into Latin, it was translated adventus, which is where we get the English word advent. So when we celebrate Advent, we're not celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating the promise of his second coming, right? So Advent uh, is, is, is a reminder that like the crop, like the farmer, God's words, God's ways never fail. Sometimes it feels like he's going three miles an hour, but his ways never fail. So this year in Advent we're going to study the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth tells a story of a young, trusting, faithful woman who gives birth to a baby boy in Bethlehem. But this story happens a thousand years before the arrival of Christ. So it is literally the Christmas before Christmas, and it shows us that God's promise to David that there would one day uh, be somebody on his throne, his promise back to Abraham that one day there would be descendants that would include the Messiah, 
And so God moves slowly from a thousand years from Abraham to the birth of Ruth's child, which was a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. He moves slowly at times. We may get impatient with him at times, but his word never fails. So we're going to practice that. And in, in that uh, Advent season, we learn to be patient. We learn to be patient uh, and we get our hearts ready. So God moves with certainty in his word. No matter what, we can have patience. Now let's define the word in the text for patient here. The word in the text for patient literally means long to boil over. It means long to boil over. It's a compound Greek word made up of these two words. So what we're saying is patient means to be long of spirit, to endure misfortune and trouble bravely, to bear with the offenses and injuries that others bring to us, and to be slow to anger, to avenge, or to punish. The Spirit gives all the resources we need to be patient. Our gospel, the gospel of Jesus, is a non-retaliatory gospel. Instead, it focuses on patience that flows from the radical forgiveness that comes from the cross. So these things are all connected and they're giving us, they're giving us this picture of what Jesus says in Luke 19 when he's talking about the second coming. He says, stand firm and you will win life. Stand firm and you will win life. Now many of you are here today and you need to stand firm because life is a cauldron of difficulty. Stand firm and you will win life. Stand firm there in our text, uh, in verse 8, literally means place our heart firmly. So when you stand firm, you're literally making a decision to place your heart firmly on the promises of Scripture, on the promises of Jesus, and to walk in that patience. Tracking with me? Okay, now, the second picture is, is this picture in, in verse 9 where he says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Again, it's the picture of the judge about to return. It's connected to the return of Christ where the judge will be the judge. And so in that, don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't be miserable because you're facing a trial. That doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do anybody around you any good. See, our gospel helps us to face the trials and our future, even death, with poise and grace. Let me say that again. Our gospel allows us to face trials, even death, with poise and grace. The best picture I could come up with for this example would be on October 3rd when the Dallas police officer, Amber Geyer, was sentenced uh, for the murder of an African-American man named Botham Jeans in Dallas. At the trial, at the very end, when the judge pronounced the sentence, the brother of the deceased, Brant, came up 
to the bar and said, Your Honor, I would like to have the opportunity to speak to the convicted defendant. And the judge is looking around the room and obviously didn't, didn't, didn't feel comfortable at all, but waited for a minute or so and then said, Yes. So this guy, Brant, comes up to the police officer uh, who murdered his brother and she was as surprised as he, as the judge was. So this man comes up to her and hugs her and says, I want you to know that I totally forgive you. I want you to know that I don't want you to go to jail. I don't want you to be harmed in jail. I don't want you uh, to experience what you're experiencing. But I... I have only one remedy for you, and that is that you would give your life to Jesus. Because in Jesus, you can receive forgiveness for what you have done. And I want you to feel that forgiveness now by forgiving you. And he gives her a hug. The whole place is like, what? But this is exactly what James has in mind. Let's walk like that. Let's not walk and grumbling and complaining and... uh, getting on each other. And that is the picture uh, that we see in verse 9. And how can this possibly happen? Because Brant knows the judge. Brant knows what the judge has asked of him to forgive those who have trespassed against him. And he knows that this perfect judgment is coming. Now, the doctrine of the last things, the the end times, the when Jesus returns and all that, that is called eschatology. Uh, Here is what the New Testament theology book by Carradine Hurst says about that. It says, eschatology arises out of the clash between faith in the benevolent purposes of God and the harsh facts of a ruthless world. That is where we are placing our heart firmly. We're placing our heart firmly, trusting the benevolent purposes of God, recognizing that around us is a harsh and brutal world. And we are saying, this is where we are going to stand. In verse 10, we see the third picture. The prophets who carried God's message, and often their message was offensive because it pointed out the flaws in the culture of the people of the time. And we do exactly the same thing. If we share the gospel, a non-retaliatory forgiveness, mercy, and grace-based gospel with the world, the world wants to earn its way by being good. But the more they want to earn their way by being good, the less free they really are. And so we come with a message of, uh, you can't actually do that. That won't work. The only way is Jesus. This is inherently offensive. Inherently requires someone to say, my way is not good enough. I need to, I need to go God's way. So this offensiveness is part of being a New Testament follower of Christ. That we're like the prophets. We're, we're like the pro- We're speaking a message that is foolishness to the world. Well, this is not something new. There have been those before us who have done the same thing. 
And our gospel gives a satisfaction that is not based on our circumstances. It's not even based on the degree to which uh, our life has worked out so far uh, in terms of the promises of God, but rather our identities as kids who bear the image of God. Can, can, as identity as kids who bear the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God, who are blessed by simply being those of faith. So Jesus would say, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So picture three is the prophets. I'm going to just choose the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah... Uh, We studied the book of Isaiah here a few years ago. It took us a year and a half to get through the whole thing. It's a monster work. But the prophet Isaiah has three distinguishing qualities of his ministry. Number one, when he was called and commissioned by God, he was told it wasn't going to work. Hey, by the way, thanks for volunteering. Uh, Thanks for taking the coal on the lips and getting cleaned up by me. But now I'm going to send you to the people and you're going to preach your heart out. You're going to write one of the longest books of the whole Bible and nobody's going to take action. You are going to be a classic failure. He told him that in chapter 6. By chapter 20, his, his assignment from God involved running around Israel naked for three years. Now this is a guy who was, came out of a rich family. He was a, he was a, cousin of King Hezekiah. So he was used to hanging out in the palace and everything else. This was his life. Running around naked for three years. Check me on Isaiah 20. And then we find out with reliable sources outside the Bible that his end was to be sawn in half. I don't know how they did that. Did they put him inside a log and then, you know, I, I, but they sawed him in half. And I don't, Can you imagine what that would be like? So in the book of Hebrews, it says about the prophets and the holy people of God, some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. That's certainly Paul's lot. They were put to death by stoning. That's Stephen's lot. They were sawed in two. That's Isaiah. Uh, They were killed by the sword, many of them. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, so, yeah, they, they, they didn't have any health-wealth gospel, for sure. They were persecuted and mistreated. But then the writer of Hebrews says the world wasn't worthy of them. And now, Isaiah, now, on this side, is one of the most quoted authors by Jesus, one of the most powerful books in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament that prophesies Jesus. We talk about Isaiah every year at Christmas. Where, where he says, to you a child has been born. Remember that? So Isaiah, Isaiah was looking forward to something. And he's, he's having a good day today. Isaiah is having a really good day today. And, and he's seeing the fruit of his suffering. And that is the lot that we have. One day we will see the fruit of our suffering. And we're, we're told to stand firm. The fourth picture is this picture of persevering character that trusts in God's mercy. 
And um, there's, there's a mercy and compassion that, that God has that you can never get to the end of. Uh, Paul Clodell said it this way. He said, Jesus did not come to explain away suffering or to remove it. He came to fill it with his presence. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, but he fills it with his presence. So picture number four is Job. In this painting by Ilya Repin, uh, Job, with all the boils on his body, has, is not able to wear clothes. He's sitting there, and his friends are... Uh, and there's 20 chapters of this where his friends try to explain to him why he went wrong and why God is punishing him. Uh, and, and we find out at the end of the book of Job and the beginning and the end, that God allowed the suffering. God allowed the suffering. And then at the end, uh, when Job was asking why, God says, I don't owe you an answer. Why? I just need you to trust me because I have the big picture and you don't. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the solar system? Where were you when I designed the universe? Where were you when I created the great creatures of the deep? And we have to simply say, and I think Job is in the Bible to remind us that we don't always know why. And it's not our business. Our business is to trust God. But he did restore Job. He did bless Job. And it's a picture, I believe, of suffering on this side and fullness on the other side. And so uh, we have suffering going on around us. In significant doses. We have those here with us on Sunday mornings who've had headaches for seven years and unable to get relief from those. We, we have those who have hearing loss. We have those who have the loss of sight. We have those who have blood clots that are painful and, and sort of conditions that just aren't going away. We have kidney stones. We have... Uh, Miscarriage. We have difficulty conceiving children. We have those that have been laid off suddenly and have no income. We have those that are in financial trouble. And we have those that have recently lost loved ones in catastrophic circumstances. All of that is present in this room or in the room at 11 o'clock. That's all part. It's a very real part of our existence. And it has nothing to do with how faithful we are. It has nothing. There's a bigger picture we don't see. And in the midst of trials, our gospel gives us an identity that is not fragile. Our identity is not fragile and our hope is not fragile either. It's an anchor for the soul, according to Hebrews 6. So Paul would write it up this way in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character hope. Recognize that chain of events? Pretty similar to James. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is why 
if you're here this morning and you have not committed your life to Christ, you have an opportunity this morning to do just that and to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, to have your heart changed from the inside out so you can actually see and really understand what it is I'm saying this morning. Because this message of hope in the midst of chaos is not, doesn't make sense without the understanding and the perspective of the Holy Spirit. Make today your day to walk that walk and I'm going to give you a, a very practical way to do that this morning. Before I do that though, picture number five is the person uh, who does not swear by heaven or by earth, doesn't involve God, doesn't involve churching it up, doesn't involve trying to make something look like what it isn't, but is simply yes or no. A, a person who is, is happy to say no. You know, there's so many times we get invited by a friend to something and we're just not interested and we just don't want to go. And it's okay to just say, you know what, that sounds really good, but I'm not going to be able to join you on that. I'm not going. Just, it's okay. It's okay to say no. And it's okay to say yes, but make your yes, yes, and your no, no. And the, and the picture here is Jesus. No bragging, crystal clear, 24. I wish I could be as clear when I'm doing this on Sunday morning. But crystal clear, always says exactly the right thing. Mind like lightning, so he can respond to a, to a challenge or someone who's trying to take him down. And he's just without being retaliatory, without being a bully, just crystal clear. So it's in his words that James is really quoting. He's saying uh, that, you know, Jesus says our gospel gives us identity as a follower of his and freedom and grace so we can speak without fear. Whether our answer is yes or our answer is no, we can do that without fear. And here's how Jesus said it. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord, fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it, by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So he is standing before us as a picture of just speaking yes and no fearlessly as we, as we engage in our, our life. So with that said, these five pictures, they point to the cross. They point to the return of Christ. And I want us to go into a time of communion and it'll be a little bit different today. Because what I, what I hope will happen is that all of the, the burden that we're carrying, whether it's internal or external, whether created by our sin or by the sin of others, I want us to... In, in, a, in a catharsis of hope, I want us to release that to Jesus this morning and walk out of here free. So here's how we're going to do that. First of all, we're going to just go through a couple things. Give Jesus all your trials and your frustrations. 
offer to Jesus your suffering to him in solidarity. Trust him with all, next slide, with all of your unanswered prayers. That's a big category. Unanswered prayers. Just trust him with that. Forgive the offenses and hurts that others have done to you. Ask the Lord to cleanse your tongue. If you're one of those people that's either grumbling or speaking and, and, and not being yes and yes and no, no. Ask God for patience and perseverance and experience his mercy and his grace. See, Jesus knows pain. Jesus can take all of our pain and all of the struggle between the kingdom being now and the kingdom being later and he can make everything new. He may not do that instantly today, but if we give it to him, he can carry it until the time when he's going to make it right. So our gospel buys us this freedom and we get to do that without being oppressors to other people. This is the, this is the, the genius of it. We, we don't have to go out and be oppressors to others because Jesus took the weight and the punishment on himself. So that allows us to be still and to place our heart firmly with him. So here's how Isaiah worded that. He said, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We were like Job's friends and that's how we looked at it. That's foolish. Why would he do that? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So declare this hope in him. And here's how we will do that. Worship team, you guys can come up. We're going to, first of all, meditate in a little bit of openness and humility and trust. Just just sit with the Lord and whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, just meditate on that. Then you can go to communion around the back way this time. Go around the back way. There's tables over here. You can write on a piece of paper whatever God's showing you today that you need to hand over to him. Whatever that is, you come on over and just give it to him. Write it all down. You can fold it. Then you move to the next station, which is a wooden cross with some hammers and nails. Then I just want you to kneel down and put your nail in there and pound that nail into the cross. There are some here today who can't kneel. So fold your paper and give it to someone who's kneeling and ask them to nail it in for you. Uh, What you're going to be doing is you're going to simply be taking the position of the Roman soldiers and you're going to enter into what happened. Because all of the mess that's affecting you has either come from your own sin, which put Jesus on the cross, or it's come from someone else's sin, which put Jesus on the cross, or it's come from the enemy who's messing with us uh, in one way or another. And that is also one of the reasons Jesus went to the cross. So what we're saying is we're just transferring the whole load of the mess onto the cross. And we are doing that by kneeling and pounding nails to enter into it uh, kinesthetically to experience that. When you've done that, 
then come and take communion. Take communion uh, and receive all that Jesus did for you. Just receive it. You see, the first part of the exercise is we're just, we're just coming in here and we're taking all of the mercy of God and we're going from wherever we are, let's say negative 100, and we're kind of coming up to zero. All right? That's mercy. When we nail that thing into the cross, we're now tapping into grace. And grace takes us and communion. Grace and communion take us from zero to 100. So we're taking mercy and grace and we're getting filled up again with all that God has for us. Is that good? Is that good? And then the prayer teams will be here and they will be here to pray over you. They're going to give you whatever the Holy Spirit gives them. But one of the things they're going to be doing is they're going to be praying that you place your heart firmly in the hope of Jesus. That you set your heart firmly and you walk out of here with a firm heart. So let me pray. Father, I just offer this time now to you. And we invite you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to move among us and to have your way with us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's his parousia. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have even died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Father, this is why we want to be thorough today to obey James and to release everything to you, Jesus. Lord, have your way. Amen. Prayer teams, come on up and when you're ready, do business with your Lord.